Mark chapter 13. We're continuing on in our study of Mark chapter 13. Uh, someone made the insightful comment last week that I said at the beginning of the message that we were uh, to be studying the book of Mark, and we only looked at one verse, and we spent our entire time in the book of Revelation. And, and that is absolutely true, but don't we now know what verse 19 of Mark chapter 13 means? When Jesus says there will be a time of tribulation, now we know exactly what that means. We are studying the book of Mark verse by verse. And so sometimes that requires that we give an explanation. We're starting in verse 20 today. Let's read verse 19 for context. Covered it last week. Jesus said, For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never shall. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. God, we thank you for the opportunity today to look into your word, to study it. And we ask that according to 2 Timothy 2.15, you would help us to rightly divide the word. You would help us to accurately handle it. Guide us. Jesus, you said that the Holy Spirit is a teacher of all things. And so now, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and teach us about the word. Lord, I submit my heart and my mind and my mouth to you. I ask that every word that proceeds from this mouth would be directly from your throne. And I ask for every heart in the sanctuary that you would open it up and that you would enlarge it with faith, God. You would enlarge hearts here with faith to receive the word which is able to save our souls, to receive it with faith, to be doers of it, to act upon it. And so teach us now, Lord. Here we are. We ask that you would speak, that you would do it for the furtherance of your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. We talked about the tribulation period last week. And you'll see there that it says in verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, and then it gives some particulars concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. Today we're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is not to be confused with the rapture of the church. Next week, we'll speak about the rapture of the church. They are two separate events. They have uh, separate things that take place during them. There's no way to reconcile them as one. We'll see that next week very clearly. And also, as I explained last week, we believe that the rapture of the church happens prior to the tribulation. It's very clear that the physical second coming of Jesus Christ happens after the tribulation. But the second coming of Jesus Christ is spoken of more often in the Bible than any other subject except for salvation. Salvation is the only thing in the whole Bible that is mentioned more often. And so if frequency of mention is any indicator, it may very well be that the teaching of the second coming of Jesus Christ is the second most important teaching in the Bible. There are 1,845 passages in the Old Testament that refer to the second coming. There's 318 passages in the New Testament that refer to the second coming. 23 out of 27 books in the New Testament give prominence to the events. There's no way you can get around the fact that the Bible teaches about the second coming of Jesus Christ over and over again. It's testified to by the fact that the church universal, 
the church universal accepts that there will be a second coming of Jesus Christ. It is in every creed, it is in every doctrinal statement of every church that Jesus will come again. If you reject that Jesus is coming again, you do not have biblical Christianity. If you were to remove all the references in the Bible of Jesus coming again, you would not have the Bible anymore. Therefore, as a Christian, you must accept the idea of the second coming. Though it takes faith, doesn't it? Because we so often want to walk by sight in this world. We're trained everything by sight. We watch TV and we see this. And even at church, we've got PowerPoint and I show pictures. And we're so visual, but we can't see his coming yet. And so sometimes it's hard for us to believe. We believe without a shadow of a doubt that he came the first time. We know that. Nobody with a brain can reject that. It is a historical fact that Jesus Christ came to the earth one time. Nobody argues against that. They can argue about the identity of Jesus Christ, but they cannot argue about his existence. It's impossible. It's a historical fact. But realize in the Old Testament, the Bible talked about, the Old Testament talks about his second coming eight times more than it does his first coming. So if the first coming is a historical fact, we can be even eight times more sure that he is coming again. And so let that build your faith today. The Bible, the Old Testament, the Tanakh in Hebrew was absolutely correct when it said the Messiah would come. And when it says he is coming again, it is absolutely correct. Now we need to ask the question, why two comings? Why two comings? In the Old Testament, there's, there's basically two veins of prophecy concerning uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. There's one vein that talks about the Messiah who would come to suffer. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, it says explicitly in verse 25 that the Messiah would be cut off. That he would come after it was prophesied 183,770 days after the decree was given to rebuild Jerusalem. It was given by King Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. Jesus would come at an appointed time, and then the Messiah would be cut off. And then it speaks about later on in in Daniel chapter 9 that the Antichrist would come, that the Messiah would conquer over him. So how is it that the Messiah is cut off or has nothing, literally in the Hebrew just ceases to be there, and yet conquers over the Antichrist who would come after him? It necessitates two comings. We see it again in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 52, in the closing verses of chapter 52, we see it declared that the Messiah would be a conqueror, that he would inherit the kingdom. And then in Isaiah chapter 53, right after that, it talks about him being marred beyond recognition. It talks about him going to the cross. It talks about the wounds. It talks about the death, so on and so forth. And ancient rabbis and scribes and those who studied the Tanakh, the Old Testament, were puzzled. How can Messiah, whom we know will come, and to this day Israel expects Messiah to come, observant Jews are expecting the Messiah to come. But in those days, how can Messiah come and be both cut off and be suffering and give himself as a sacrifice and yet be conquering and have an everlasting kingdom? Because the prophecies are very clear that he would inherit or sit upon the throne of David and that he would rule and reign forever. And because Jesus died upon the cross, Jews reject him today as the Messiah. They say there is no way that Jesus could possibly be the Messiah. Because when Messiah comes, he will return the kingdom to Israel. He will establish the kingdom. He will deliver Israel from its oppressors. And he will sit upon the throne of David. And he will rule and reign over the entire world. And they say, Jesus never did that. They would say to you and I, Christian, it's ridiculous that you would even think that he could be the Messiah. He came and he died. But observant Jews today neglect to see the fact that there are two comings. Now, there were some ancient rabbis who believed there must be two comings. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that if he would have an everlasting kingdom, and yet he would be cut off, that he has to be cut off first. Otherwise, if he had the everlasting kingdom, he could never be cut off, so he's got to be cut off, and then he has the everlasting kingdom. 
And many uh, ancient rabbis said, okay, well, then there's got to be two comings. He's cut off, and then he comes again. Other ancient rabbis said, no, there's not two comings. There are two messiahs. One who comes is the suffering servant of Yahweh, spoken of repeatedly in the book of Isaiah, and one that comes is a conquering king, spoken of throughout the Bible. And now observant Jews today tend to ignore the suffering aspect and they allegorize that to pertain to the nation of Israel. They say that the suffering of the Messiah was fulfilled in the persecutions that Israel underwent. And now we are merely expecting a Messiah who will be a political conqueror and deliverer. And we talked about the implications of that with regards to the Antichrist a couple weeks ago. I want you to turn now, keep your finger here and go to the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 5. Keep your finger in Mark, though. We'll be right back. Hosea chapter 5. Hosea is just after Daniel. Hosea, if you've never read the little book of Hosea, I really encourage you to do so this week. It's wonderful. In the book of Hosea, there's a guy named Hosea. He's a prophet of God, and God says to Hosea, Hosea, why don't you go uh, marry this girl, Gomer? And Gomer is beautiful, and Hosea said, cool. (laughs) I know, Gomer. (laughs) You want to have a baby daughter today and name her Gomer. But Gomer was beautiful, and Hosea says, that's cool. All right, I'll marry Gomer. And he goes and he marries Gomer. Gomer abandons him and goes into a life of adultery and prostitution. And she winds up at such a low place that she winds up naked on the auctioning block as a slave. And at that point, God speaks to Hosea and says, I want you to go and buy back Gomer. But Lord, she's an adulterer, an adulteress. She left me over and over again. She played the harlot. She's filthy. She's defiled. You want me to go pay money for her and buy her back? Yeah, I want you to buy her back, and then I want you to love her. And it was to be a picture of God and the nation of Israel. That the nation of Israel would turn its back on God over and over again. And as God said in the book of Jeremiah, the nation of Israel would play the harlot with idols. And the nation of Israel would end up naked and wretched on the auctioning block of slavery to other nations. And yet repeatedly God would go after her and redeem her and bring her back and love her once again. Before the church was ever called the bride of Christ, Israel was called in the Old Testament the wife of God. And so we have that picture in the book of Hosea, but I want you to see this little prophecy given to us in chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Hosea 5.15, the Lord is speaking. He says, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait a minute. God is speaking. God says, I will go away to my place. When did God come? When did God come? When did God come? Emmanuel, the virgin birth, Jesus Christ, God with us, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father. When did God come? He came as Jesus Christ, obviously. Uh, When did he go away? At the ascension. He went away. Jesus said, in my father's house, John chapter 14, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will return. And so we see here a prophecy about the Messiah, about him not only coming one one time, but then about him leaving, and then look when he returns. I will go away and return to my place. He ascends to the Father. He's seated at the right hand. Until they, speaking of Israel, acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And then it says, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Now, an aspect of the tribulation period that we somewhat neglected last week, but I asked you to get this CD or go online and listen to another message I gave on the tribulation, is the fact that it has everything to do with the nation of Israel. It is called in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, the time of Jacob's trouble. Remember, Jacob had his name changed to Israel by God. 
It is the time of Israel's trouble. The tribulation period is not only God pouring out his wrath on an unrepentant world, but it is God refining and rebuking and chastening the nation of Israel to bring them to the point of recognizing their Messiah. Very explicitly. He says here, I will go away until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their affliction they will earnestly seek me. And so in the affliction that Israel undergoes during the tribulation period, both because of the wrath of God and the wrath of Satan. I asked you to read Revelation chapter 12 last week. That was your homework. You saw there Satan warring against Israel. Because of that, they will finally turn to the Messiah at the second coming. The second coming and the tribulation period have everything to do with Israel. When Jesus Christ comes again, when Messiah returns, where does he come to? Washington, D.C.? Uh, Berlin, London, Gay Paris, <laughs> Moscow, Santa Barbara, Carpinteria, not even Carpinteria. When Messiah comes again, he comes to the nation of Israel. He comes to the nation of Israel. The second coming has everything to do with the Messiah finally being revealed as such to that nation. You'll remember that at the first coming, he stood in Luke 22 over Jerusalem and Jesus wept and said, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, how long I have wanted to gather you as a chick gathers her hens, but you would not have it. And so because you did not recognize this, the day of your visitation, and then he pronounced the coming destruction of the temple. But he is not done with Israel at that point. The church is birthed, and the church was made up of Jews. The original church was all Jews. That's why it's a little silly when people say the Jews rejected the Messiah. The early church that followed the Messiah was all Jews. But then there came a point in the book of Acts where the gospel, the door was flung open for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. God had always told Israel that they were to be a light unto the nations. And we're told in um, Genesis chapter 12 that Israel and the Abrahamic covenant there would be a blessing to the nations because of the Messiah. So Jesus comes. Some of Israel receives him. Some of Israel rejects him. The Israel that receives him becomes the church. And then the church is open to the Gentile world, which is far bigger. And so the church becomes now Gentiles and Jews. But God is not done with Israel. He refuses to let them go, and so he will refine them by fire in the tribulation period. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into the fire, and it was not until they were in the fire that they had an epiphany. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar said to his men, didn't I tell you to heat that furnace up seven times hotter? Yeah, we did it. Didn't we put three men in the furnace? Yeah, Nebi, we put three dudes in the furnace. But I see four in the furnace, and one looks as the son of God. When Israel, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fire, then they saw the Lord Jesus Christ in an epiphany. When Israel goes into the fire of the tribulation, when they are refined through that, then they will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. The very next verse says, Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live. So let us know and let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. So Jesus is going to return a second time. He's going to return to Israel. That Israel might recognize him as the Messiah. I want you to see that very clearly now in the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 11, if you would. Romans 
Romans chapter 11. I mentioned that today you should pick up the CDs on Romans 9, 10, and 11, God's faithfulness to Israel. But look in the preceding verse in Romans 10, verse 21. But as for Israel, God says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And man, that is a perfect description of the nation of Israel throughout the ages. A disobedient and obstinate people. They saw more miracles than anybody else in history or on the face of the earth. And yet they had less faith and they committed more sin and they walked away from the Lord more than anybody else in history except for you and I. Don't be so quick to point a finger at Israel, obstinate, stiff-necked people. So are we. The Lord is pursuing you and I and he's pursuing Israel. And so he says here, I stretch my hand out, out to them all day long, and yet they are disobedient. So uh, much of the church today, much of the church in America today says, and at that now, God is done with Israel. It's called replacement theology. They say the church has replaced Israel now in the plan of God. And all the promises made to Israel throughout the Bible are now transferred to the church. That is nonsensical for a plethora of reasons. One being that the promises made to Israel concerned a literal and physical land in the Middle East. The church is never called to go live there. The church is never called to dwell in that land. And so if the promises of Israel were transferred to the church, then why don't you live in Israel? Why aren't you living in Jerusalem? What are you doing over here? You're being disobedient to God. No, you're not. Those promises aren't for the church. They're for Israel, and God will fulfill them. Is God done with Israel? Next verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Paul says, for I too am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Very clear. I don't understand how any segment of the church can say God is done with Israel. Israel may have rejected God, but God did not reject them. And now look in verse 11 of chapter 11. Paul says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. In other words, they're not receiving the Messiah first around. First time around is not the end of the road, is it? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. When a large portion of Israel rejected the Messiah, the door was thrown open to the Gentile world. And if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, biblically speaking. And so the Gentiles were brought in the kingdom of God to make Israel jealous. We're just that uh, boyfriend, you know. When your girlfriend broke up with you and, and she still loved you, she went and hung out with that guy just to make you jealous. Now, it's an imperfect analogy because she didn't really care about that guy. She just wanted to get you back. Not exact analogy with God. God cares about all the nations. Salvation is for all the nations. But it is to be an ordained purpose of the Gentile church that we are to provoke Israel to jealousy with regards to the Messiah. That we are so to love the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. That we are so to cling to his promises that it should be such a reality in our life that Israel looks and says, what? That's our God. Who are you guys? What are you doing? We're the ones that got the scriptures. That's our God. Why are you playing around with our God? Look what it says in verse 13, or verse 12. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? That is, if there was great salvation coming to the world even when they rejected the Messiah, how much greater will it be when the promise of their redemption is fulfilled at the second coming? And in verse 17... But if some of the branches, speaking of Israel, were broken off, and you, speaking of Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. 
You'll say, though, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. How is the church to view the nation of Israel? We are to love it because, according to the Old Testament, it is the apple of God's eye, meaning the pupil of God's eye. Now, instinctively, if someone goes to poke you in the pupil of your eye, what do you do? You protect it. Instinctively, it's not wax on, wax off. You don't have to think about it. Someone goes to poke you in the eye, (laughs) you're going to protect it. The Bible declares that Israel is the apple or the pupil of God's eye. And there is a historical precedent for God protecting it. Both in the Bible, we see that God did uh, war on behalf of Israel. And in modern times, we see it. In 1948, May 14th at midnight, this date, May 14th, 15th, 1948, Israel became a nation again. Unprecedented. It never happened in history. The next day, five surrounding Arab nations attacked Israel. They were outnumbered 540 to 1. They attacked Israel, and Israel, against every conceivable odd, pushed back all five nations and gained more land than they were given a few days before. Generals that were in the battle say, it's miraculous. It's the God of Israel. And so in the war of Yom Kippur in 1973, when they were attacked on the Day of High Atonement, when they were all, uh, uh, the, the Day of Atonement, when they were all in the synagogues, once again, they were attacked by the surrounding nations. Um, Egypt was in cahoots with Russia, and they pushed Egypt back all the way through the Sinai uh, Peninsula and all the way across the um, Suez Canal, and they crossed it, Israel did, and they're 50 miles from Cairo. And when Israel's 50 miles from Cairo, then Egypt called up Russia and said, stop the war. And Russia called America and said, help, stop the war. And America stepped in, stop the war. And Israel gave back all the land. How do they do that against such overwhelming odds? God fights on behalf of Israel. And so same thing in the 1967 war. Study it for yourself. I want you to keep that in mind because in a moment, we're going to see that at the second coming, it is expressly God fighting on behalf of Israel. I want you to remember that there is a biblical precedent for that and a historical precedent because it may seem odd to your ears that he will be doing that at the second coming. Now, having digressed much, look now what it says in verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, speaking of Israel, lest you be wise in your own estimation. I want you to know that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In their rejection now, God has blinded Israel. He's hardened their heart. A partial hardening. A partial hardening. There's always a remnant of Jews who recognize the Messiah, but a partial hardening has happened until the very last Gentile is saved. When will that be? We'll know at the rapture of the church. As soon as the Gentile church, the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, then the church will be raptured out of here, and then look what happens next. Verse 26. And thus, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove godliness from Jacob. That is the purpose of the tribulation, to refine Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, all Israel will be saved. Now, what does that mean, all Israel? Because I've had Jews quote this back to me who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet they use the New Testament, and they say, look, even your New Testament says that every Jew is going to be saved. Many Jews believe this today, that just because they're of Jewish descent, they're saved. Absolutely untrue. That statement is qualified by verse 23. Look at verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. All Israel, not meaning every single individual Jew, but meaning the nation as a whole shall be saved at the second coming of Jesus Christ when they no longer continue in unbelief, they recognize him as the Messiah. That is the purpose of the second coming. Let's see it very clearly now in Zechariah. 
turn to Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. I, I promise we're, we're, we're going back to Mark sometime. Let's look in chapter 13 first. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. That's talking there about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, being crucified. Now look, the next verse is heartbreaking. It has to do with the tribulation period. We saw last year, in the, in, uh, or last week, excuse me, our study of the tribulation, that 50% of the population in the world is destroyed at the wrath of God. Heartbreaking. This is equally as heartbreaking. This next verse, it's referring to the tribulation period. Verse 8. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. That verse teaches that two-thirds of the Jews alive during the tribulation period will perish at the refinement. It's heartbreaking. Remember last week, if you weren't here, you have to get the CD. You remember last week that we spoke about God's wrath always being tempered with God's mercy. That God did not pour it out all at once. That he did it in stages. That he warned humanity in various and in sundry ways over and over again. And he has been warning Israel from the beginning of time, preparing them for the first coming of the Messiah. He told them in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, the very day that the Messiah would come the first time. I already spoke about that. And then they missed it, many of them. And now he is telling them when Messiah will come a second time. And here's the key difference between the second coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is that event spoken of in the New Testament by Jesus and the authors of the epistles when it says, No man knows the day nor the hour, therefore do not be caught unaware. That's the rapture of the church. The second coming, the day, will be absolutely known. Because remember, we're told throughout the Bible that the tribulation period is seven years long. Half of that is three and a half years, 1,260 days on the Jewish 360-day calendar. We're told that the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple and declares to be God exactly halfway into the tribulation period. For those Jews who are in the tribulation period, if they read the Bible, they could count from the day that the Antichrist, the abomination of the desolation, takes place. 1,260 days until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus wanted them to be aware of the first coming. He wants them to be aware of the second coming. God takes no pleasure in catching people unaware that they might miss salvation. The rapture catches us unaware, perhaps, if you're not paying attention, but it's not about missing salvation. It's for those who are already saved to be removed from the wrath of God. The heartbreaking thing is, two-thirds of all Jews will die in the tribulation period. But the one-third, verse 9, I will bring the third part through the fire, the tribulation, Refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Now in chapter 14, we have some very clear details. Verse 1, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. And I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravaged, half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will be cut off from the city. So we're told that in the last days, all the nations will be gathered against Jerusalem. 
Welcome to the last days. Read the history of the UN and their decisions with regards to Israel. Do a poll of every nation in the world and, and see what their stance is with regards to Israel dwelling in the land and Jerusalem being the capital. Though, Do you know that not one nation has their embassy in Jerusalem? Though Israel declares, my capital is Jerusalem, and in every other country, foreign embassies are placed in the capital of that country. Our capital is Jerusalem, and yet not one country puts their embassy there. They all put them in Tel Aviv. Every country has refused to recognize Israel's sovereign right to the land and Jerusalem as their capital. And it is the source of so much conflict today. The Bible tells us that ever increasingly so in the last days, the nations will be gathered against Jerusalem until the battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon is expressly the Antichrist with his one world forces coming against Israel and Jerusalem. Make no mistake about it. It's explicit. Here we see it in Zechariah 14. But look what it says in verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. There it is. In the last days, the nations will be gathered against Jerusalem, specifically culminated at the Battle of Armageddon, which takes place at the end of the tribulation. But God says, I will fight on behalf of Israel, as I did throughout the Old Testament, as I have done in modern history, so I will do it again. Now we know it's the second coming because of the next verse. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Some might say, well, that was the first coming. Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives in the first coming. Well, what about this? Which is in front of Jerusalem and on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Can't be the first coming of Jesus Christ. The Mount of Olives never split in two. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, he will set his feet down on the Mount of Olives, and when he does so, it will be split in two. It's interesting that it will move uh, one half to the north, one half to the south. That means that there must be a fault line that runs from east to west. July 11th, 1927, geologists discovered a fault line that runs under the Mount of Olives going from east to west. Not because God needs a fault line to make the mountain move, but because God is throwing us a bone there, people. He is throwing us a bone to say, look, my promises are true. When I say I'm going to split the Mount of Olives in two, and my coming, I'm going to do it. Here's a little reminder. You've got to have faith to believe the word of God. The second coming is eight times more certain than the first coming. Now, gee whiz, this is going to get complicated. Put your finger here and go to Revelation chapter 19. Remind me to come back to Zechariah, somebody. Forget about Mark. Nah, we'll, we'll, well, I'm not going to say we're going to get there. We might get there. Revelation chapter 19. We're going to see the second coming of Jesus Christ here. Some wonderful details about it. Now, remember last week I told you that the events of the tribulation are outlined from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 18. And then in 19 is when we have the second coming. The first 10 verses we'll deal with next week when we talk about the rapture. But I want us to pick it up in verse 11 now. Revelation 19 verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now who is that? Jesus Christ, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, uh, John chapter 1. Verse 14. 
And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. We will identify that group of people beyond a shadow of a doubt next week. Verse 15. And from his mouth, that is Christ Jesus, comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come and assemble yourself for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit upon them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast, that is the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies. So here we have, according to Revelation chapter 16, and here, and Zechariah 12 and 14, the Antichrist, and the one world army, the armies of all the nations, gathered together in Israel at the valley of Armageddon. We'll go there on our Israel tour coming up in December. Here they are gathered in Israel at the valley of Armageddon to do war against Israel, to do war against Jerusalem. And as we read in Zechariah chapter 14 in a minute ago, this is where God intervenes once again. On behalf of Israel. And when they see the Lord coming, it says, Now I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, verse 19, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. We know from Zechariah they're there to do battle against Jerusalem, but when Jesus shows up on the white horse with all his homeboys on white horses behind him, the Antichrist goes, gee whiz, oh my gosh, let's turn around and let's do battle against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Bad move. Verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The second coming of Jesus Christ. Defending the nation of Israel. Why? Just to defend them? No. To reveal himself to them and to prove himself faithful to the world. Remember, he made various and many promises to Israel that after they were removed from the land, they would be returned from the land. And once they were returned, they would never be removed again. Antichrist here has enough forces to wipe them off the face of the earth. In order to keep his word, in order to be faithful and true, which it says he is upon the horse, he must defeat the forces of the Antichrist and save Israel to prove himself faithful. If God is not faithful to Israel, you have no reason to believe that he will be faithful to you. Why would he keep his promises to you if he didn't keep his promises to Israel? He's made much more to Israel, promises that is, than he has to the church. The good thing is we can look over to the Middle East. We can see that on May 14th, midnight, 1948, Israel became a nation again, a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, and we see God is faithful. He's keeping his promises to Israel. Therefore, even though at times I doubt my salvation, even though sometimes I feel like I'm not even saved. And even though sometimes I feel like the Lord, he's, I don't know if he's ever coming back. I don't know if all these wrongs will ever be set right. Even though you may feel that way, you are mistaken. If God has been faithful to Israel, he will be faithful to you. He is a God that keeps his promises and he's proved it with that silly little nation. Glory to God. Isn't he good? And so he intercedes. And now back in Zechariah 14. We pick it up right at that point. Remember in verse 3, he goes forth to fight the nations and he fights on the day of battle. And then in verse 4, he sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives. So the Valley of Armageddon is north of Jerusalem. So he's come in the sky with this army behind him, who we will identify next week. And he comes to the Valley of Armageddon and with the word of his mouth, he defeats the Antichrist. He continues and he comes down south to the Mount of Olives, puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. From there we know 
that he will enter what is called the gate glorious or the golden gate or the eastern gate. It is the eastern gate of the temple mount. It is the gate that Jesus went through at the triumphal entry. It was the Mount of Olives that he went down. He'll go down the Mount of Olives again on his second coming. And he went to the Temple Mount at his first coming. He'll come to the Temple Mount at his second coming. I have some interesting pictures for you. Let's look at the first one. This is an aerial view of the Temple Mount. Remember, we discussed the various uh, structures on top of the Temple Mount there. Uh, Israel has official sovereignty over it, though they have entrusted to the Islamic authority. That golden dome is an Islamic memorial. And then on the left, that black building is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Okay, don't mis- mistake those as being Jewish. And now, no, go back, please. Thank you. We are looking at this from the air above the Mount of Olives. And so pretend right now that you're in a helicopter. Directly below you is the Mount of Olives, and so you're looking west. This is facing us from the east. You're looking west now at the Temple Mount from the air. Um, Now go to the next picture. There, now the helicopter has come down a little bit, and now we're hovering in front of the Mount of Olives over what is known as the Kidron Valley, K-I-D-R-O-N in English. And we're looking directly at, there's the Dome of the Rock, but then on the right, you see that gate? You see that blocky structure there on the right? That is the Eastern Gate or the Glorious Gate or the Golden Gate. That is the exact location, though it's not the same gate. There's some layers since 2,000 years ago. That is the location on the Temple Mount where Jesus entered at his first coming. That is the location on the Temple Mount where he will enter at his second coming. Let's look at the next picture. And now we see it. We've gotten out of the helicopter. We've walked down the little Mount of Olives, and we're standing at the bottom of the Kidron Valley, right where Jesus rode the donkey. And there it is, the gate. Jesus would have been up now the side of this hill, ascending up to the Temple Mount, and onto the Temple Mount where he cleansed the temple. Last picture. There it is up close. Very interesting. You see in front of it a bunch of graves. Those are Muslim graves. Those are Muslim graves. The graveyard was started in 1541 by an Ottoman Turk with the intention of preventing the Jewish Messiah from arriving. Because the scriptures say that he will come and he will come to the temple through the eastern gate to establish his kingdom. And the Ottoman Turk wanting to exert his authority, his sovereignty over the nation of Israel and over Jerusalem planted graves in front of the eastern gate and said that will keep the Messiah from coming. Because remember the Jews were looking for a Messiah who was merely a man. And no Jew will walk on top of graves. He would be ceremonially unclean according to the Old Testament. And so if the Messiah were merely a man, that would work. The Messiah, as a rabbi, would look and go, Oy vey, I can't go across those graves. I'll be ceremonially unclean. And then it would be impossible for me to ascend to the Temple Mount because I am ritually unclean from walking across those graves. But he's not a man, is he? He is Jesus Christ, the God-man. And so it says, not only will these graves not keep them away, but you see the graffiti on the bottom right-hand corner? It's been marked out now, but when that graffiti was originally put there, it said, come Messiah, Israel awaits you. Israel is awaiting the Messiah today. So much of Israel missed the first coming. They'll be refined. It's heartbreaking just like people of other nations that don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. In his tribulation period, he'll pour out his wrath to rattle them to repentance, both Gentiles and Jew alike. The second coming, he'll reveal himself. This is very clearly now in Zechariah 12, verse 10. Verse 9 for context so that you see right where we're at. Zechariah 12, 9. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Battle of Armageddon. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look upon me. This is God talking. 
so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. At the second coming, Jesus Christ will be revealed to Israel and to the nations as a Messiah and the Jews will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn and they will repent. And next week, part two, we'll get to Mark next week. Lord, we thank you for your promises that are sure and true and absolute and unfailing. And I just pray that today, Lord, as we've looked at some of the particulars of your second coming, and we'll look at more next week, that you'd stir in our hearts, God. You'd stir in our hearts a tremendous love for you. That we have been saved. God, that you opened our eyes. That it's not a mystery to us that there's not a partial hardening that's happened to our hearts, but God, you have opened our eyes. Restore unto us this day, God, the joy of thy salvation, that we would once again be in awe of the fact that I am saved. And that we would experience all that you have for us today. Thank you that we don't have to wait for the second coming to see you face to face, but we can see you face to face today. Your word says that we can enter boldly unto the throne of grace and there commune with you. Paul the Apostle wrote concerning communion that as often as we take of it, we proclaim the death of Jesus until his coming. Because we remember as we hold the bread in our hands that God is faithful that he will never fail, that his body was broken for us, that he was pierced through for our transgressions. And we remember as we hold the cup, which is a picture of his blood, that he spilt it for you and I as he promised. And as sure as that first coming and that gift of communion is, it is eight times more sure that he is coming again. And so we proclaim his death until he comes again and is revealed unto the nations. Today, let's worship that God who is so good. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to repent. You need to say, God, I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. I'm sorry, but I understand, Jesus, that you died to pay the price for my sins. Save me. God will save you. Let's worship a God that is that good. The God who was, who is to come, and who is right now. As real as the second coming is, he is right now. The Lord is in our midst. He's here to save and he's here to heal. And so you come forward and you take communion. You come forward and the prayer team will be up here. Let's do business with our God. Today is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Prayer team will come up.